All right, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be getting the fourth chapter today, which is a good thing. And uh, moving through this wonderful leather that uh, the Apostle Paul has granted to us. We're grateful that he is teaching us some incredible, incredibly important things, and we're grateful for the, the poignant information that it has given to us, especially in the season that we're going through right now. Paul is wrapping up his treatment of a problem that was dividing the Corinthian church. And the question that is being addressed in the scriptures that we're going to read today, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5, is this. How should the wisdom of the cross affect the way that we view our leaders? And we have a lot to talk about, and the Lord is inviting us to share the table with him today as well. So let us not delay as we've got our Bibles open. We're going to begin at verse 1 of chapter 4. The Apostle Paul writes, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. Who is the us in verse 1? The us is the teachers that the Corinthians have been dividing their attention underneath. Just to give you a quick recap, the problem that was was first on Paul's mind as he engages with the Corinthian believers in this correspondence was the problem that many of these Corinthian believers were dividing themselves from their other brothers and sisters underneath the leadership of one particular leader that they liked more than the others. Some would say, I am of Apollos. Another would say, no, Apollos doesn't know what's going on. You've got to follow Peter. And then others would say, no, Peter, he's okay, but Paul is the guy you really want to be under. And by this division of rank, these people were looking down on others who didn't like the leader that they liked. And they were, in a sense, creating barriers between the fellowship and the unity of the church. The teachers themselves did not want this sectarianism to happen in the church. The teachers of themselves, though, had a responsibility to undo it since it was a problem and needed to be addressed. Paul doesn't simply tell the Corinthians what not to do here. He gives them a better way to view their leaders. The Corinthians, and all believers really, should be careful to regard their leaders first as servants of Christ. This word in the Greek, servants, is a real generic and general term. It means anyone who is a help to someone else. It couldn't be translated assistant. It illustrates that the model of leadership that God has brought to us is not one of authoritarianism, but it illustrates that the model of leadership one that God has brought to us is a model of serving with integrity. We see this in Matthew chapter 20, in verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, <coughs> and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. So Jesus gives them this radical flip-flopped version of, of leadership where they're not to be dominating one another, they're not to be lording their authority and power over one another, but instead their leadership should be seen as a prime opportunity to serve one another. And he says, this is not just something I'm telling you to do. Jesus said, this is what I have come to do. The Son of God himself has come to be a servant to those who should be serving him. The elders and apostles should be therefore a blessing to the church, not a hindrance to the unity of the body of Christ. And so who are these leaders? Who are the apostles and the elders? Who are they serving? Paul makes that clear here as well in verse 1. They are servants of Christ, right? It is His will, Christ's will, not their own will, not the will of the congregation. It is Christ's will that is the driving aim of the servants of Jesus. And so as they serve one another, they are actually serving Christ because it is Christ's command for us to look out for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The second way that we should regard our leaders is very similar to the first, but it's not exactly the same. And the difference between these two terms is important for us to grasp. We should regard our leaders as servants of Jesus Christ, and we should regard our leaders as stewards of the mysteries of God's. Now, this word stewards, or ekonomos in the Greek, is a little different from the word that he used for servant. A steward is specifically a household manager, somebody who is in charge of the resources of one greater than himself. A servant, to be sure, but a very specific kind of servant. They are tasked with overseeing and keeping the integrity of the household of God. Authority is granted to a steward. A steward is one who has been delegated a degree of power and freedom to take care of the affairs of the king or the master who's in charge of the household. They are tasked with representation of the master. That is their responsibility. In other words, these stewards are to represent their master in, in places of business, in places of organization and administration, they are to look after the affairs of the master on his behalf and for his good. Archaeologists have found um, some ancient documents that give us kind of a fuller picture of this stewardship. Um, one of them I'm going to read a section for was just a secular document. This is not from the Bible. This is just a secular document contemporary to the time of Jesus where a man is writing out legal authority for his steward to care for his business while he is away on an extended journey. This, uh, this ancient document reads, I have empowered you by this document to administer my estate in Arsinoe and to collect the rents and, if need be, to arrange new leases or to cultivate some land yourself and to give receipts in my name and to transact any business connected with stewardship just as I can transact it when I am present and to distribute the plant the, the plots in Karamis, which was another territory thereby, restoring to me what remains over, as to which matter I rely on your good faith and I confirm whatever you decide about them. So that's an example of a secular earthly master delegating stewardship to his most trusted servant. He was going to be gone for a time and this man has such 
freedom and ability to serve his master that he can spend resources from his master's wealth. He can use the master's plots of land which he owns to develop new, th- new ways of doing business. Everything that the master could do while he was there, this steward is entrusted to do. And this gives us just sort of a loose understanding of what it means to be a steward of the mysteries of God. Those who serve as leaders in God's church are stewards in that way. And they're not stewards primarily of money, not primarily of land or physical material resources, but rather they are primarily stewards of these mysteries of God. Remember, the mysteries are the truths which were formerly obscured to us, which we could not understand. They were shown in, in a way as signs to us, as shadows and types, pointing forward to the things to come, pointing forward to God's plan to redeem man through his Son. But as Christ has now been born of the flesh and has lived in such a way that he has accomplished redemption for God's saints, they are not really mysteries to the saints anymore, at least to those who can understand them with the help of the Holy Spirit. So they are servants of Christ and stewards of those mysteries which he brings to light for us. Now you might ask yourself, why does that apply to the apostles and the elders? Isn't that something that applies to all of the Christians in God's kingdom? Shouldn't we all be servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. We know that every Christian who's filled with the Spirit has what is called the priesthood of the believer, meaning that now holy work is the responsibility of all of God's people, that each one of us has been given spiritual gifting that enables us to be a blessing to the church, and to be a component that God will use in the spread of the gospel and the exaltation of His great name. As members of one body, we are told that we all play a role in this function. There is no dead weight in the church, or there should not be, because all of us should be contributing to the well-being of God's mission. That mission is described to us as the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where we are told that we are to go forth into the world, and as we are going, that we are to make disciples together that we're to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that God has commanded. That is not just the work of a very few. That is a work we are all supporting. When we gave an offering just a few moments ago, you were engaging in the work of spreading the gospel and preaching the truth by supporting that financially. We are all a part of this. So we are all servants and to some degree stewards of God's kingdom. But let us not underestimate And let us not underemphasize the importance that God places on leaders and teachers in the New Testament. Not all of us will be held accountable for shepherding the flock of men called to a specific and serious responsibility. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. So yes, we will all be held accountable to serve God in the capacities He has given to us. But some are specifically called to hold a greater responsibility and to therefore to make sure their lives are, are in line with God's Word to a greater degree because they will be exemplary to other believers And they will be tasked with teaching them with clarity what it means to follow after Christ. There are rewards and punishments built into this particular calling. If God calls you to be an elder, 
There is great joy that can be had in serving him and seeing the blessing of the rewards of Christ for your servants to his kingdom. But there are also grave consequences if we handle this calling flippantly, if we do not approach it with a reverent heart, if we are not trusting in the Lord God to do this great work in us, because it is not a work that man can accomplish apart from the Lord's provision. 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, meaning the day of judgment, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So here the Apostle Paul is speaking to his contemporary, his, his peer, Timothy, reminding him that those who serve in this capacity as leaders of the church have a great, wonderful reward awaiting them. There is blessing in heaven for those who have exalted the king in this service. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Those whom God calls to ministry get to watch as God uses their gifting to grow up other believers around them. And it is our greatest gift as pastors to see you, the people of God, acting on faith walking in the truth and using the spiritual gifts that God has given to you in such a way that God is glorified as well. So there is blessing, but also grave responsibility in this special stewardship of being a teacher or an elder in God's church. We must be servants. We must be stewards. And this is the way the people should view their leaders in Christ. But no matter how the people view their apostles and elders, there is another set of eyes that must mean so much more to them. And that's described in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In other words, Paul is saying, look, I, this is how you should view your leadership. But we're not so wrapped up in how you view us. Because what matters to us is how someone greater views us. How someone greater than you is judging our work in our faithfulness. Some versions of Scripture are a little bit more conversational in this translation of verse 3. One of them says, I carry very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Now, don't misread this from Paul. This is not a statement of arrogance. It is a statement of sincere priority. A steward must care first and foremost about what his master thinks of his work. He's not so concerned about the other masters in town. He's not so concerned about uh, what the government may think about what he's doing. He must be concerned about what his master has put him to task to do. The opinions of others should be very little in comparison to him. Remember the words that Paul wrote to the Roman church in chapter 14, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. See, the language that carries over there in Romans is the same concept of stewardship that is, is used here in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians to help us to see how we are to view our leaders. That they have a master, and that master is the one who is on the throne, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Paul is very likely contending with some harsh judgments from those who would rather align themselves with some other elder or some other apostle under God's leadership. There were many who were much more favorable to Peter's ministry or to Apollos' ministry. And yet Paul 
is willing to address this, at least in an, in an indirect and roundabout sort of way, because he's not phased by those harsh judgments. Paul has just made the statement in the paragraph before that the elders and the apostles at that time, they belonged to the Corinthians, that all things were the Corinthians. Do you remember that from last week, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23? For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So the apostles and the elders have been given to the church by the Lord. They rightfully belong to the Corinthians. They are in a very real way their possession. But that doesn't mean that they are accountable to the Corinthians. That doesn't mean that the Corinthians call the shots in the lives of the elders and the apostles. What happens when the people begin to act as though their shepherds must ultimately answer to the sheep? What happens when that sort of misalignment of authority and delegation occurs? You get chaos in God's church. You you get blurred lines of authority and and, and God's pattern of ecclesiology, of church structure, is laid to waste. An example of this has, has been made clear to us just recently. Many of you know that at this time, Pastor John MacArthur and the elders of Grace Community Church down south are engaged in a very legal, important legal battle with the state trying to determine whether or not the state has overstepped its bounds and trying to prohibit people from assembling to worship the Lord God. Now, without a doubt, there were conflicting opinions among the congregation as to whether their church should get involved with that sort of action. And there were conflicts within every congregation across California, believe me, about how to handle the limits that have been placed on God's church through this pandemic. There was even significant disagreement at first amongst the elders of Grace Community Church as they tried to determine how to go forward. In fact, Pastor John was very open in saying Phil Johnson, another elder there, really challenged John to see the law in a more accurate light according to God's law. So over time, they they got on the same page and they decided to, to march forward but they could not expect everybody in the church to just 100% applaud their decision. If they were to listen to every single member of the congregation, many probably would have said, no, I think we should just wait it out as long as necessary. There would have been so many different conflicting voices trying to influence the direction of the church. Opposition came from outside of the church as well. One of the great sadnesses of this pandemic is seeing other pastors and godly men criticizing and picking apart John and the other elders at Grace Community because they disagree with the way that he went about what he did. Other believers have been among Grace's harshest critics for taking this stand. Still, John and the other elders there at Grace Community would tell you that they believe they are doing the right thing in honoring God by speaking up for the religious freedoms of the church. They have not allowed man to be their judge. They know that there is a God in heaven to whom they must give account. That is what drives their leadership. That is what should drive the leadership in every gospel-preaching church. Paul declares that it is a very small thing to be judged by man. But the wording there is specific for a reason. And I want us to miss this. The judgment of others is a small thing. But it isn't a totally inconsequential thing. We would be wise, friends, 
to consider what other people filled with the Holy Spirit perceive in us. When King David made the critical error of allowing his heart to desire after the lovely Bathsheba, a married woman, when he himself was already a married man, and after having brought her to himself and laid with her, his sin came to an unavoidable confrontation when Bathsheba informed him that because of that time together, she had become pregnant. King David multiplied sin by sin. He attempted to cover up his wicked choice to commit adultery by making it seem as though her husband slept with her and caused her to be pregnant. He brought him, a faithful soldier in his own army, brought him home from the front lines and urged him to to go and experience the comfort of his household. But with his fellow soldiers engaged in battle, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, respectfully refused to sleep in his own bed. And so David in desperation, made the decision to order Uriah's death by sending him into the worst part of the battle where he was struck down as the other soldiers pulled away from him. Uriah having been slain, David took Bathsheba as an additional wife to himself. And shortly after that, in 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan approached David and began to tell him of a story. A story of a poor man who had very few possessions of his own, But who did own one single sheep, a lamb which he kept as a pet and loved dearly? The landowner to that poor man owned a multitude of sheep. The one that he served had massive flocks of animals that he could use at his disposal. But when a man came to visit and they needed to kill a a sheep to feed that visitor, that guest, he did not draw from his own flocks. But he went to that poor servant's flocks and he took his one lamb and he slaughtered it and offered it up to his friend as sustenance. It's an act of great injustice and selfishness that stirred the heart of David and made him angry. He was enraged to hear of this wicked act against a fellow Israelite and he demanded to know the identity of this wealthy landowner so that he might be brought to justice. And Nathan, in a great turn of story, revealed that the story was metaphorical, that the landowner was none other than King David himself, who took from Uriah not only his only beloved wife, but also his life in an act of sin, covering up sin. In that moment of confrontation, David, who was a leader over the people, did not say to Nathan, God alone is my judge, Nathan. Who are you to tell the king what he can or cannot do? In humility, he considered the validity of what Nathan had said. He accounted for his actions and he turned from his sin in repentance. Nathan's judgment of King David was a good and relevant judgment because it wasn't his own judgment. Nathan was simply delivering God's judgment to David. And he could have done that even without a prophetic push directly from the Lord. The law of God had made it abundantly clear, plain as day in the Ten Commandments, that what David did was adultery. It was nothing short of heinous sin, and it needed to be repented of. So when we say that Christ is our only judge, that doesn't mean that we disregard the wisdom of every brother and sister in Christ. There are times when other believers filled with the Spirit are used by God to remind us of what we have all come to believe as followers of Jesus Christ. 
Man is not our judge, and it should be a small thing to hear another man cast judgment upon our character. But let us not forget that God's judgment to us may very well come through another person, especially another believer who is open to being used of God. You know, we would even be wise to consider what lost men and women who are lacking spiritual vitality and judgment, we should even pay at least a little bit of attention to what they perceive about us. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is helping his friend Timothy to get ready to appoint elders in the church in Ephesus so that they might be led well there. And this is what he says about those who would qualify to serve God in that capacity. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. What does that mean? That means their actions should not be so vague that they leave themselves open to accusations of sin. They must be above reproach. He goes on to say they must be respectable. In other words, they must carry a good reputation among the brothers, that they might have action and words and deeds that match the law of God. And then he goes on to say a little bit further down in verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, meaning those who are not believers, those in the community that we are trying to reach, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Man is not our ultimate judge, but he is not completely incapable of perceiving sin in others. What if a man desires to serve as a pastor at a local church, but upon checking his references, the church discovers that the candidate is considered a criminal by the secular world who testifies that for the last several years that potential minister has unlawfully evaded paying his taxes. I think the church would do well to consider that testimony even though it comes from a secular source, right? If the servant has not been faithful in a little thing, how can his master make him a steward over much? So a godly leader doesn't totally disregard the views of the people he is shepherding, but... He does know who his true master is. His ultimate judge must be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. An arrogant disregard for the judgment of others usually only serves to let a person be their own judge and lean on their own opinions and preferences. By casting aside any other voice that would speak against their own, a leader can at times act as if his personal opinion is the only one that matters. Clearly, that is not the case here with Paul. He makes that clear in verse 3 where he says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Saying, I'm not like pushing all your judgments away because I know what is best for me. You know, he says, I don't even judge myself. Verse 4, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. It is Jesus Christ who is my only judge. Paul doesn't make a practice of judging himself because he knows his own limitations, that he is but a man. Though redeemed, he is himself a sinner and capable of perceiving things the wrong way, capable of being tempted to value things that have no real value, capable of overlooking what is critically important to his ministry. So he knows himself far better than any of his peers do, yet he doesn't even consider himself capable of rightly judging his own heart and conscience because he knows full well that God might see something sinful in him that Paul doesn't even see in himself yet. So Paul will allow God to be his one and only true judge 
And we'll wait for the final judgment before he declares himself free from guilt. Friends, there's a principle to grab hold of here. We see in this testimony of Paul in verses 3 and 4 that ignorance of our own sin does not render us innocent of sin. Just because you don't know the bad thing that you're doing doesn't mean that you get off the hook for the guilt of having done it. The lost world around us proves this to be true. Many people who completely disregard God or have zero knowledge of the gospel might look into a mirror and examine their lives and think that they see a righteous man or woman there. But even if we are never exposed to the words of Scripture, these individuals are no less accountable to those words than somebody who grew up in the church and heard them preached every single day. Every human being in the entire world is under the curse of the first man, Adam. As his descendants, following in his footsteps, we are no less responsible to honor the God who created us than Adam and Eve were when they were instructed not to eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Just because a person is ignorant of their need for redemption in Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that they get a free pass from judgment. And so, friends, we preach the gospel. We share the light of truth with the lost world around us. For how can a person trust in Jesus Christ if they have not learned of the weight of their sin? If they have not come to grasp that their sin is rebellion against the God who created them? If they can't see that their sin is punishable by not only death, but eternal punishment for their rebellion against God, how will they repent if they don't know that? How can they repent and believe in an act of love and grace God the final judge sending his son Jesus Christ to take on flesh and to live among us in this broken world so that he might fulfill every law of God and honor the Father in every moment. How can that be brought to their awareness if they are never hearing it spoken? How else will they know that the perfect Son of God suffered like a criminal, was executed publicly on the cross, and then after three days, he rose in victory over sin and death for all who had put their faith and trust in him. How can they know that unless the message is consistently preached in truth? So church, if you care about people, you will not ignore their guilt and hope that it all works out for them. You will obey the calling of scripture and you will declare the righteous work of Jesus Christ in salvation so that by the inner work of the spirit, the truth declared may result in the blind having their eyes opened and their need for Jesus made apparent to them. Remember Romans 10, 14, Romans 14, 10 through 12. It says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. You look out in the world today, and there are no shortages of philosophies on what happens when we draw our last breath. Everyone would like the freedom to be able to choose what kind of a judgment, if any, they receive when this life is over, but that is not how judgment works. Judges, judgment is handed down from a superior to an inferior. And because God is the creator, he is in all ways greater than we are. He has made us, but he didn't just wind us up like a toy and then sit us on the table and let us 
go our own direction, never to be heard of again. He made us for His glory. And when this day is done, when this world is complete, and Jesus Christ returns for that second time to judge us, to give us a final verdict over what is holy and what is wretched, when He purges His creation of what is, what is, what is twisted and sinful and evil, and replaces it with something pure and holy again. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is indeed Lord. But it is only those who in this life put their faith and trust in Jesus who will then enter into the presence of that great Lord to experience eternal fellowship with Him. Those who thought their righteousness was enough to get them into heaven will be sorely disappointed. Those who believe that their philosophies were clever and thorough, and made them good citizens. If they have not Jesus, they will not have the life in the last days. And so we must, church, preach about the one true judge because we will all become before him when the time is complete. Though the judgment of our peers do carry a minor practical value, they would only represent a true evaluation of our efforts if they accord rightly with the judgment of Christ. The lost, loving, and accurate the most loving and accurate judgment that we could render to one another is to simply take our brothers and sisters and show them the word of God. Show them the judgment that he has revealed to us supernaturally through the inspired scripture that he has preserved for us over the years, that he has called to be preached to our ears because we have come to desire to know what is acceptable to God. We seek to know this word daily. We must not neglect it. And so it is a very small thing to be judged by other people, but it is not a small thing to be judged by Jesus Christ, God's Son. Make no mistake, the elders and apostles have a judge over them. Though a degree of authority has been delegated to them as good stewards, they answer to the master. And that master can come back at any moment and demand an account of his elders, of his servants. Jesus is that master, and he will require an account of what his servants do. And this, of course, makes the calling into ministry is something that must be considered very carefully. I don't share that warning to dissuade people from thinking about the ministry, but it is something that must be entered into cautiously and only because the Lord himself is drawing us to that kind of a task. Yes, there are rewards that come with a position of service to the Lord that is so specific, such as elder, but there is also a greater and stricter responsibility. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15 about two weeks ago, an evaluation of what is being built, that the materials that are being built in this, this structure that is founded on Jesus Christ, that those materials themselves must be built uh, with things of integrity. Straw and hay will burn away in the final judgment, but gold and silver, these things will last the judgment. 1 Corinthians 3.14, if the works that anyone builds, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And I have no doubt that Paul looked forward to that reward. But that work is not weighted by measuring the size of a pastor's congregation or by measuring whether or not that man is approved of and applauded by the people he serves and the irreligious people who fill the world around him. That is not the reward. Jesus Christ is the only one who can declare that pastor's work to be godly or not. He is the one who determines the value of their efforts. The scales are in his faithful hands. And that valuation cannot be accurately accomplished by anyone apart from
from Jesus Christ the Son. So the apostle calls us to patience in verse 5. He says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose, disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. There is a time, church, and a place for true judgment. The kind of judgment that people of Corinth were casting on their leaders was nothing more than a childish judgment of preference. They favor one over the other. None of the men were dividing under, were teaching heresy or living grossly in error. And so it wasn't like they were saying, I can't follow Apollos because you see how he lives in sin. That wasn't the case at all. They were judging their leaders based on their preferences. Oh, I like the way this guy preaches more than I like that guy. That person's more personable to me, and so I favor him. This pastor emphasizes more of the Old Testament, not so much of this nuance. I really like the Old Testament, so I favor him. They were going on their preference, not on the truth of God. This was a faulty type of judgment. Only the Lord himself was in a position to reward or chastise his own servants, so the church had no right to do it. This isn't a moratorium on judgment itself. When it comes to matters of obedience to the word, we cannot afford not to judge. Paul has already shown that to the Corinthians. We must judge those who are within the church. Isn't that our responsibility? 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. He's not telling them to judge one another on their preferences. He's saying, judge one another according to the judgment I have revealed to you. He delegates part of that responsibility to the leadership that he has called. And the church will eventually judge the world as well. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 13, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to, trial, to try trivial cases? So we're going to see that in a few weeks, or perhaps months, when we get to chapter 6. But our judgment is only good in so much as it matches the judgment that God has already revealed to us in His Word. In time, all things will be evaluated rightly. And what specifically will, will determine God's evaluation of his servants? When Paul and Apollos and Peter stand before the living God in judgment on that last day, what will determine whether he is well pleased with them? Verse 2 made it very clear. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Faithfulness is the measure that will be taken into consideration in that last day. Not that they be found popular, but that they be found faithful. Not that they be found dynamic and impressive, but that they be found faithful. Not that they be found innovative and unique from other pastors who are trying to do the same thing as them. No. God will ask, have you been faithful? Faithful to the call. Those who would serve God do so only because he has graciously afforded us a stewardship. He is the master and the servant that has that his faithful to him carries that is faithful to him cares only to please him and follow his instruction. How can we let someone else's opinion dictate how we live? Remember the words of, of Jesus, our only judge, in John 5, verse 44, when he said, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. We cannot content ourselves for the applause 
of men like us. Rather, we should live every moment of our lives desiring to be pleasing to the one who has commissioned us to the work of, of saved saints. And how do we obtain that glory that only comes from God? Apart from his help, we cannot do it. But thanks to his holy work, we can. Because the judge was willing to serve our sentence for us, we can be set free from sin and death. So let us not, brothers and sisters, ever allow the judgment of man to render meaningless the true judgments of God, who in love was willing to suffer on our behalf to release us from the judgment that we had earned. Let me ask the Lord to bless what you've heard and then we'll transition to a time of worshiping God through the sacrament of communion. Almighty God, humble our hearts as we digest the great nourishing words that have poured forth from your scripture this morning. I ask, Lord God, that you would rightly correct our view of our leaders if they have been off point. Father, help us to never become so enamored with the men that you have assigned to lead us that we lose track of the one who is truly beautiful, the one who is truly worthy of praise and glory, that being Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that he would be the object of our affection and desire and devotion and that our faithfulness would be to him and to him alone. I ask, Lord God, that you would give us discernment as we apply these things in our day-to-day lives. Help us to let this eternal truth be of great practical good to us. We are thankful for this time that you have prepared for us to come to the table and fellowship with you. And we ask that we be blessing to our hearts and grace to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.